Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama part illegal immigrants. Uh, African Americans uh, being mistreated in society. Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Trade war. You know what it is? My new slogan. America great. Hello, I'm Drew Sheldrick, and thanks for listening to 2020 Vision. Another presidential phone call with an Australian Prime Minister has caused consternation among allies, and we'll be talking all about that, plus the kickoff of impeachment investigations with this week's returning guest. Before we meet him, let's have a listen to how the American media has reacted to Australia's sudden cameo in the latest White House scandal. General is one of the most respected people in this country, and he has been for a long period of time. So what I've done is I've declassified everything. He can look, and I hope he looks at the UK, and I hope he looks at Australia, and I hope he looks at Ukraine. I hope he looks at everything, because there was a hoax that was perpetrated on our country. President Trump has asked another foreign leader. This time it was the Prime Minister of Australia to help investigate his conspiracy theories around the origins of the now complete over and shuttered Mueller investigation. From that New York Times story, quote, President Trump pushed the Australian Prime Minister during a recent telephone call to help AG William Barr gather information for a Justice Department inquiry that Mr. Trump hopes will discredit the Mueller investigation. That's according to two American officials with knowledge of the call. I mean, there's just so many things that are being conflated here that that is just ridiculous. I mean, you had the report up there before about how, uh, you know, Barr may have, uh, the president may have talked to the president, prime minister of Australia yeah. about cooperating with Barr. And, and now all the Democrats are rolling out, oh, and he did it in Australia, and he did it in this country, and he did it in that country. No, 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 that's not true. So you have to, they're conflating two different things. One, there is an investigation by Rudy Giuliani in his capacity as Trump's private lawyer into Hunter Biden. And then there is an official Justice Department investigation being led by a career prosecutor named John Durham, who's looking into the origins of the counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign and the Mueller probe. This is, first of all, the Mueller investigation is over, but this is another example of willingness to weaponize U.S. foreign relations, interactions with foreign leaders to do political damage to his political opponents. There's pressure on the Australians. They're in a whole variety of trade negotiations with us, etc. This is obvious thug-like behavior. This is mob tactics. And the old Rudy Giuliani from 30 years ago would have been putting these bastards in jail, and now he's one of them. But do you believe those three specific right. countries, Australia, Italy, Great Britain, that there was a specific outsourcing of illegal spying? In other words, they subcontracted spying right. that in order to circumvent American laws, they said, will you spy on this person for me? Do you believe that likely happened? I don't know, but I know we're going to find about, out about that in two weeks, and I think Barr should be looking at that. I am hoping and praying that somebody will look at the way the counterintelligence investigation against the Trump campaign began. Was it based on evidence that Papadopoulos was working with the Russians, or was it based on stuff coming from countries friendly to us? 
Bruce Wolpe was a congressional advisor to the Democratic Party during President Obama's first term and served as chief of staff to former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. He's now a senior fellow at the United States Study Centre. Bruce, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Drew. A lot of Australians will be confused by this phone call this week uh, between Donald Trump and Scott Morrison, as well as the so-called ask that, that, that took place in that phone call. What do we know so far about that conversation? Well, we know there was a conversation at some point before the state visit in which the president called up uh, the Prime Minister and said, uh, we uh, would like you to assist, we'd like the Australian government to assist our inquiries as to the origins of the Mueller investigation. This was flagged in correspondence uh, transmitted earlier to which the American, uh, the Australian ambassador, Joe Hockey, had replied and everything was in good order. Uh, there's a lot of hyperventilation about this. I'm going to dial it down a little bit. Okay. Uh, I don't see anything super extraordinary about what has occurred. Um, uh, with one exception. What, what Trump is motivated by is he wants to discredit the Mueller investigation. And he's looking for and he believes in conspiracy theories about its origins, all kinds of conspiracy theories. One of them is that Australia was spying on the Trump campaign and that what Alexander Downer, when he reported uh, that he became aware of Russian interference in the American election, that Alexander Downer was part of s such a conspiracy. That's what George Papadopoulos and other people say. Right. It's bunk. Yeah. Uh, and all that happened was he, from everything that I understand, and I don't think anyone has contradicted any of this, Downer met with Papadopoulos in London. Papadopoulos said the Russians have information on Hillary Clinton's campaign, emails. Downer at first did not do anything. But then when Hillary email started appearing after that meeting, he then notified authorities in Canberra. He went up the chain. Canberra notifies Washington. The FBI begins looking at it. That's it. Yeah. And what I like to say is, well, if the, Ameri if the American ambassador heard that China had emails on the prime minister, if, if the American ambassador in London, if he heard that, what would he do? Well, I would think that they would report it to the Australian government and have the Australian government investigate it. There's a lot of people in Australia that also find it quite humorous, that this idea that Alexander Downer is some kind of Clinton acolyte out there spying on behalf of I remember campaign. being on, on television <laughs> with him in 2008 and he was bitterly opposed to, President, to Obama's campaign. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so I don't see any issues. And, uh, and I do think there is virtue in cooperating with the investigation because, again, this president is susceptible to believing in conspiracy theories. Yeah. If, if Australia just presents the facts, that is insurance and insulation against a uh, erroneous charge by Trump that Australia was involved in a nefarious way in getting the Mueller investigation off the ground. So I think it's in Australia's interest to make the representations on the facts. I, I know you said that you don't think it's, it's scandalous that Australia agreed to uh, take part in this investigation or assist, but I want to read you a quote from uh, Connecticut Democratic Congressman Joe Courtney, who is co-chair of the Congressional Friends of Australia Caucus in Washington. Uh, in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald's Matthew Knott this week, he said, the story about the phone call casts a real shadow over what has been a very special relationship. Um, it, is the it has the potential to cheapen people's perceptions of it, uh, and that is very unfortunate. He then goes on to say, I feel terrible that Australia is being sucked into this vortex. Could Australia's response to this intelligence request really 
really impact on our relationship with the United States? Uh, I don't think so, right. uh, unless unless Trump comes to believe that Australia was involved in some nefarious conspiracy here. Um, Sean Hannity but, seems to think that, <laughs> given his comments <laughs> the last few days. We'll leave that to the Fox News Network. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if people um, just uh, think about it a lot, this is a grubby business. Yeah. And so therefore, I think the member of Congress, the friend of Australia, is saying, you're now involved in a grubby business, and that's unfortunate. I think a lot of America's allies around the world in this, uh, the Secretary of State has been in Italy and so forth, uh, feel that they're now involved in a grubby business. And it, and it is. Uh, there's no virtue in um, what is being pursued here because uh, the, the, the Mueller processes and the exhaustive look at it was by the book. And, uh, and that was the final judgment on what occurred. And that judgment was not sufficient to cause any impeachment of the president. In his interview with Sky News, David Spears on Wednesday, Scott Morrison, uh, when asked about the decision to assist the investigation, said, what other possible response would Australia have provided? He's right, isn't he? That's kind of speaking to your point. I mean, would it have been reasonable for Australia to say no to this request? I don't think so. Uh, again, grubby business. Yeah. You disagree with, you have concerns about where this all might be going. But the fact is the president is the president. The attorney general is the attorney general. They are duly constituted. Allies work together. You're getting a request from an ally. I think you cooperate to the extent that you can. Just going beyond the phone call for a moment, is it usual for a US Attorney General to be travelling all over the world to request assistance of foreign governments in an investigation like this, as William Barr is at the moment? Uh, no. Okay. I mean, the, the, now the intelligence on the intelligence agencies share information all the time. There's sure. five eyes and, and everything else. But for the Attorney General to go travelling, we'll see if he shows up here. Uh, uh, for the Attorney General to go travelling and meeting with uh, governments to ask information of this nature, highly unusual. And, it, and again, what does it do? It creates uncertainty, um, some anxiety among allies about their relationships with Washington. And that doesn't help anyone as far as I can see. Um, and I which, but I, at the same time, I think every government that's asked will cooperate. Yeah. It seems strange Except that you wouldn't Russia. Just... I don't think Russia would. No, no. <laughs> um, it just seems strange that you wouldn't pick up the the, the phone and, and call an intelligence agency chief it in another be, country. It should be sufficient to do it by phone yeah. or even by a video call. Yeah, but it's we're we live in strange times and and very strange things are happening. How does this latest controversy fit within the impeachment investigation? Do you think is this conversation with Scott Morrison completely separate to the Ukraine phone call, or is it likely to factor into this inquiry at the moment somehow? Uh, I think it's completely separate okay. for, uh, as I've said in a previous time, uh, this is the dog that didn't bark. W uh, on the reports of the Ukraine call, uh, the, the aftermath of it was that officials were concerned about what they heard. Right. On the reports of this call between the prime minister and the president, no one has come forward and said, I'm concerned about what I heard here. So no, I think they're in two different classes completely. I'd be, uh, it, it would be shocking if, uh, if a, sim a parallel development to the Ukraine call emerged with the call between the president and the prime minister. If that hasn't happened so far, I hope it does. You wrote this week that the uh, that you expect the Democrats will vote to impeach the president before Christmas. Can we really expect this to happen so quickly? I think so, right. uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, th unlike uh, the Mueller report and obstruction of justice and collusion with the Russians, which was very complicated, uh, and we've seen uh, immense difficulties of the responsible committees to hold the hearings, get the witnesses, get the documents, process it in order to reach a further judgment. Is impeachment warranted? This is something everyone gets this in one uh, as to what happened here. The president calling the president of 
Ukraine and asking for politi- him to investigate and provide political dirt on President Trump's main political opponent. I think people understand that that is uh, likely to be an abuse of power uh, by the president, conflating foreign policy interests of the United States with his personal political interest. Um, so it's a very simple proposition. Uh, as a political matter, for this to drag on into the middle of next year, for example, that has several very bad effects. It, w- it means that uh, we've seen this week how the oxygen is sucked out of everything yeah. by impeachment. If that, it's one thing for it to persist for some weeks. It's another thing for it to persist for some months. And it also means that the United States is paralyzed as far as its dealings, uh, not only on domestic policy issues, but around the world. And you have a presidential campaign that will hit high gear beginning in February when the primaries actually occur. Yes. So it is in everyone's interest, the president's too, even though he hates it. Yeah. It's in everyone's interest to have this resolved sooner rather than later. So it is a relatively simple proposition to document. It can be done relatively efficiently. Uh, You never say the words Congress and efficient together, but it can be done relatively efficiently in the um, House Intelligence Committee. The other committees are working in parallel. It can be packaged by the Judiciary Committee. I do expect votes um, in these committees uh, on articles of impeachment uh, in uh, November, and I believe it would come to the floor before Christmas. Among those scheduled to testify this week before the House committees is Trump's former envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, who resigned last week, uh, and uh, the US Inspector General for the Intelligence Services, Michael Atkinson, who handled that whistleblower complaint. What are your former colleagues on the Hill going to be looking for with their questioning? Well, on Volker, they're going to be looking for corroboration of the whistleblower's report. And on the Inspector General, they want to vet the process by which the whistleblower report was seen to be credible. So I think they just want to uh, document all that and get that on the record. So I see it as a very important investigative process uh, matter uh, for them to be able to show to the public we're on responsible ground here. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi did not want to initiate impeachment proceedings. I think that's clear. What finally got her to accept that there was no other course of action here? Uh, Several things. Um, When the when she took assumed the posture that she did, that um, impeachment, it was just premature to talk about impeachment. The case had not been made. It didn't enjoy bipartisan support. It was not popular with the American people. Uh, that was that was where matters stood after the Mueller report, after the Judiciary Committee hearings to date, and so forth. Um, when this emerged, it just what it was like lightning striking, and people, as I said, they got it immediately, and. Uh, the political fear among Democrats was you start down this road, uh, you jeopardize because impeachment was not is not popular. You jeopardize um, the uh, ability of the Democrats to retain the House yeah. next year. There were 30 Democrats who won in Republican seats, the so-called moderates, the moderates. And uh, they had been holding back any judgment saying, let's go forward with impeachment. That started shifting immediately after Ukraine emerged. And there was an op-ed in the Washington Post a few days later by seven Democratic members who won in Trump districts, holdouts on impeachment, who says, enough is enough. We can't – it's not right anymore. We have to get to the bottom of it. The impeachment process should begin. That was uh, an earthquake, and that shifted uh, the landscape, and that uh, convinced uh, Speaker Pelosi that it was proper to go forward. 
It's easy to forget uh, amidst this impeachment investigation, we're also in the midst of a democratic primary and debates uh, season and the election, of course. Uh, how are the candidates shaping up at the moment, uh, especially in light of, of Biden's involvement in this Ukraine scandal? It's really interesting to think about uh, Biden and the Ukraine scandal and what it means. Is he going to emerge as the victim hero yeah. out of all this? Yeah. Is he going to emerge as someone he's got, OK, Joe, you're innocent, but is there baggage? And so does it become um, damaged goods? Uh, as seen by Democratic voters, should we have somebody else who's not at all involved in this but still has high ground on impeachment and so forth? So that remains to be seen. And then uh, who, would, who would be alternatives to him? The yep. candidate that's really done extremely well consistently through the years, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she, her support has grown. She has cut through on issues. She's been able to raise a lot of money. She's built an organization. She is extremely methodical. And uh, she has a strong presence in Iowa. And then New Hampshire, of course, is a neighboring state to Massachusetts which it also is for Bernie Sanders. But we've just learned that uh, Senator Sanders has had um, a heart procedure yes. uh, and had some stents put in his heart that will improve his arteries, which is great, and I'm sure improve the flow of his <laughs> rhetoric when he finally recovers. But th And that gets to the age issue. The three leading candidates are all over 70, facing a president who's 73. So I, uh, this race is generationally challenged. So can Kamala Harris come back? Yes. Can Pete Buttigieg uh, really uh, emerge? And he's raised a lot of money, and he's going to be fully competitive. Um, can Cory Booker come back? So uh, in one sense, the race is extremely fluid, uh, but it is clouded by—no uh, one knows how impeachment is going to play. If the Democrats are wrong and, and, and the conventional wisdom is right, that impeachment will have a huge blowback on them, there's almost nothing— very little can be done to salvage the situation. But the calculation they're making is that this is these matters are so serious that the American people will ultimately see the virtues of um, weighing them, and polls are already shifting. It was 60-40 against impeachment. It's now over 50 percent in favor of looking at impeachment. So if the conventional wisdom is wrong, then Democrats will be well served by this. One other thing, if we just look at the timeline here, if I'm right and impeachment is resolved in the House by Christmas, then a trial in the Senate will occur in January. This is exactly what happened with President Clinton in 1998-1999. And Senator McConnell, the Republican leader, has said if the House impeaches, we will have a trial. But as soon as that trial convenes, it will be possible um, after opening statements for a motion to dismiss the charges to be tabled. And that uh, put on the table. And that's only a majority vote. That's a simple majority vote. It's not two-thirds, nothing. There are 54 Republican senators. So if you have impeachment, you could have a trial and you could have a motion to dismiss and, the, and everything could be dismissed within days yep, of the trial commence. So then the question is, well, how does, what does that look like? If the House has voted to impeach and they have a credible case, okay, yes, it's political because almost no Republicans will support it. But if in the court of public opinion, the charges are serious and there's something serious going on here, it's been presented to the Senate, and the Senate just says after a few days, that's it, all gone. 
Well, does that help or hurt Republicans in the Senate? So no one knows the answers to these questions, and we're in new territory, but it is, uh, and that's why it's going to be volatile and really interesting. Not to mention, if uh, the State of the Union goes ahead in January, it'll be a very interesting time for uh, uh, Trump. President to Clinton had uh, presented a State of the Union address after he had been impeached, right? And um, it was uh, the nation was riveted. It was an amazing night. Um, he uh, barely acknowledged uh, what he was going through. It'd be hard to see if President Trump would have the same decorum <laughs> if, if he's if a trial is underway while the State of the Union is going on. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, speaking of former presidents, just finally, it was uh, former um, President Jimmy Carter's birthday on Tuesday, turning 95 years young. Uh, any reflection on uh, his legacy as the, the 39th president? Uh, the 39th president, he was elected in 1976. He came out of nowhere. And he came out of nowhere as governor of Georgia because he was the un-Nixon, the anti-Nixon. This was the election after Watergate. And we're, and we're facing a similar dynamic here. After Trump, who's the most potent Democratic candidate? It's going to be someone who's the counter, counter image of what Trump was. So, here, so here's Carter uh, following Nixon and Jerry Ford, uh, who's a, a small state governor, a clean skin, whose words to the American people were, I will never lie to you. I will always tell the truth to the American people. And he kept his word. And he uh, won a very close election against Jerry Ford. Probably Ford probably lost the election because he pardoned Nixon. So Carter comes in, and he uh, an extremely well-intentioned man, very thoughtful, very smart, but a micromanager. His cabinet ultimately was quite chaotic, and he was afflicted with two really great crises, a recession caused by the Arab oil embargo. Energy prices were through the roof, and people were in gas lines for you know hours at a time. It was terrible. And interest rates went up to the double-digit levels, and the Iran hostage crisis. And he had a failed rescue mission for that. It was, it was just pathetic. And that really weighed terribly on him. And he had a primary challenger in one Senator, Ted Kennedy. And uh, he, he beat Kennedy, but at, uh, it, he was incredibly weakened by the time he secured the nomination. Um, so his, his presidency will, is remembered as a, a failed presidency in terms of effectiveness and so forth. He did do one great thing, though, uh, Mideast peace between uh, Yasser Arafat and, and the Israeli leaders. And, um, and that was uh, quite a day uh, in the White House when that was done, the Camp David Accords. And he'll, and he'll be remembered for that f uh, forever. In recent years, though, he has stayed uh, a simple man, true to his values, giving back to the community, going around the world uh, on humanitarian causes, really cares about uh, housing for um, poor people throughout the world and in the United States. And uh, over time, uh, people have come to really respect and admire his, um, his faith and his uh, quiet commitment to a better country and a better world. So uh, I think we can just say happy birthday, Mr. President. Bruce, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Drew. Thanks also this week to the Babamara Brass Band, Ketza and Broke for Free for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 